Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Well, Donald Trump goes full authoritarian dictator. A couple of thoughts. Number one, given that Donald Trump, he doesn't respect rules, right? He is, in fact, I think that this is probably the story of his entire life. He hired people to take his tests for him in school, according to his niece's autobiography. He lies to banks and inflates the value of his assets. He lies to the IRS and decreases the value of his assets. Or if he's telling the IRS the truth, he's $400 million in debt way in over his head and desperately in crisis. So, and he obviously has lied to his wives about what he's up to and who he is and all this. So, although Melania said, I knew who he was when I married him. In other words, it's a transaction, right? So here we've got a guy who absolutely is out for himself and nothing else, period, full stop, who also knows that if he loses this election or if he can't figure out a way to stop from losing this election, if he can't figure out a way to hang on to power, In all probability, you know, six months or a year from now, he's going to be looking at prison. And his kids, too. They're all in on the con. In fact, it probably goes way beyond that. You've got, what do you call it, an oversight group, a watchdog group, yesterday charged that the Trump campaign has laundered over $140 million in campaign contributions. They're basically just moving it into corporations, calling it consulting fees and things like that, and sticking it in their pockets. Which makes perfect sense when you discover how broke he is. But it raises the question, if this is the kind of person who is going to be in a debate, somebody who has no respect for basically anything, and certainly no self-respect, then how do you do the debate? We've got two more debates that are scheduled. Should they only turn on the mic when the person is called on? And then only open both mics when it's time for people to have a dialogue? You know, the upside of that is we could actually have a debate and hear about issues. But Trump is going to do everything he can to avoid that because he's got no issues. Plus, by the way, if they did that, everybody would say, oh, well, the debate moderators are making it easier for Biden. Joe Biden tried to bring up the fact that Donald Trump is trying to take away health care from 30 million Americans and wipe out protections on pre-existing conditions. And Trump simply lied. He said, no, I've got a great health care plan. Four and a half years since he announced his candidacy and said he had a great health care plan. We still haven't seen it. Why? Because it doesn't exist, as Biden pointed out. So Trump is, you know, he's great at destroying things. He has destroyed multiple businesses in his life. He has destroyed the lives of lots and lots of people. He's a destroyer. But he's not a builder. He doesn't know how to create things that have lasting value. And the few things that he has created property-wise are all losing a fortune and have been apparently for decades, thus six bankruptcies. So anyhow, the only issues that were discussed, number one, the Affordable Care Act, he lied. Number two, the economy and the impact of the coronavirus. And again, Trump lied about that and tried to make it himself the victim. No, no words of, oh my God, you know, isn't it sad that, you know, 207,000 Americans are dead and a million Americans are infected with a virus that could devastate them. Excuse me, 7 million. And taxes. I mean, you know, uh, Joe Biden brought up Trump's tax cut and Trump was like, oh, that was a wonderful thing. So how do you handle a debate 
where one of the parties in the debate has absolutely no interest in discussing the issues, and when the issues do come up, will lie through his teeth about them. And therefore, everything he was doing was throwing chum in the water, throwing blood in the water, throwing dust into the face of his opponent. Everything he was doing was an attempt to divert, deflect, distract. That was it. And the polls are in. There was a opinion poll. They found, as I recall, 54% of Americans thought Joe Biden won. This was a report on CNN. 54% of Americans thought Joe Biden won. 34% of Americans thought Donald Trump won. But I can tell you the Daily Stormer, the official Nazi website, their headline today is Trump is the greatest person on earth. Their article starts out, the takeaway from the debate is this, Donald Trump is the greatest person on earth. He shouldn't be president, he should be king. If he were king, he wouldn't have to deal with all of the scum in Congress, the scum that runs his government, and he could deal directly with the needs of the people. That's what the Nazis had to say this morning. Over on Fox News, this is what David Bossie wrote, quote, To any reasonable person watching, it was clear that President Trump came prepared and resoundingly defeated former Vice President Joe Biden at Tuesday night's first presidential debate in Cleveland. Meanwhile, the Trump family came in wearing masks, and that was shown on TV, and then they sat down and took off their masks. They were the only ones there. There were apparently a few other people on Trump's side of the audience who didn't wear masks, but, but by and large, it was the Trump family, the Trump children. Melania wore her mask throughout the whole thing, but everybody else took them off. And one of the doctors, I mean, they, they had hired this hospital, you know, it was Cleveland Clinic, co-sponsored this thing, and they were providing, you know, advice on what to do and how to do it. And, you know, President Donald Trump's family ignored coronavirus guidelines They sat in the row without masks. And then one of the doctors came over during the debate, or just as it was about to start, and asked them to put on their masks. Said, these are the rules. You must put on the mask. And they basically said, screw you. Who do you think you are? We're God's gift to the world. Don't you know? We're the Trump family. We don't live by rules. Rules are for the little people. Little people pay taxes. Little people follow rules. We're Trump's. Screw your rules. That was essentially their message. Some of the best one-liners from Joe Biden. You're the worst president that America has ever had. The fact is, everything he's saying is simply a lie. Everyone knows he's a liar. It's hard to get a word in with this clown, excuse me, this person. Trump wouldn't know a suburb unless he took a wrong turn. And he's Putin's puppy. And this isn't about his family or my family, it's about your family. That was a pretty brilliant line. But how do you make this happen? Oh, and then I got to tell you my take on exactly what Donald Trump was doing. I think he was just going full authoritarian dictator. You're listening to Tom Hartman. You can help America return to democracy by telling friends and family how to listen to this and other great progressive programs. Tag, you're it. Okay, I just, I I wanted to share with you also my take on exactly what happened. And I probably should have opened with this, but I think this question of, you know, what do we do going forward is a really important question. But what we saw, in my opinion, pure and simple, was the dictator's playbook. There is no other way to describe it. You tell violent white supremacist racists to stand by and encourage them to show up at polling places to intimidate voters. That's right out of the dictator's playbook. You bully and bluster and threaten like Mussolini did. By the way, go back and watch some of the old footage of Mussolini. This is how Mussolini behaved. He promoted his brand as, I'm the tough guy. When in fact, Mussolini was a lazy coward, just like Donald Trump is. You claim that the other side is evil, like Hitler did. You personalize that. They, oh, those socialists, they, you know, setting up excuses for state-run police violence when you're in charge of the state, along with brutality from vigilante groups. As Trump clearly called out to, you trash-talk democratic institutions like the vote, like Hungary's Viktor Orban does and Saudi Arabia's dictator Mohammed bin Salman does. Millions of Americans are struggling with the loss of their jobs, 30 million specifically, 
lack of health care during a pandemic. So another at least 20 million people have lost their health care on top of the 30 or 40 million who never had it. And an absolutely gutted social safety net after 40 years of Reaganomics has shortened and shortened and shortened the period that people can get long-term unemployment and cut and cut and cut the, the level of benefits you can get with things like food stamps and housing assistance. And with all that going on, millions of people in crisis, all Trump could do was brag, yell, and threaten. He never once said to the American people, I care about you. I am going to do something for you. Because he doesn't. And he hasn't. He's been president for three and a half years. And he hasn't done anything for the average American people. He's, he's passed a huge tax break for his billionaire buddies and for himself. And he has cut environmental regulations so that his coal mining buddies can dump waste in rivers, poisoning children. He's gutted the other EPA protections. He's, well, you know, you know the list. I don't, I don't need to go through it. But this is just classic dictator playbook. The only winner of the debate, so-called debate, was oligarchy and dictatorship. Russia, China, and authoritarianism around the world were the big winners. America was the big loser. And by the way, the Senate Intelligence Committee, or maybe it was the House Intelligence, one of them, either the House or Senate Intelligence Committee this morning, released an unclassified report pointing out that China has just executed 20 people who were working for the United States. We had 20 spies in China. They penetrated our top secret communication system for communicating with our spies in China. Once they penetrated it, they figured out who was working for us and they executed them. We've got a serious problem here. Hey, did you know that Hillary Clinton actually won Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, North Carolina, and Florida in the 2016 election? It's on page 92 of my new book, The Hidden History of the War on Voting. Welcome back. Tom Harvin here with you and uh, Mike in Upper Marlboro, Maryland. Hey, Mike, what's on your mind? I have a very simple solution for the next debate. Do it virtually. You have one you know, I think you're right. One, one physical location, you have another candidate in another location, and the moderator is in a third location. This yep. way, the camera can pan on one candidate. If he doesn't get an answer, pan away from him, go to the next candidate. And if those shenanigans begin, mute him and go on to the next candidate. Could certainly control. Yeah, I agree. And Trump is relying on basically physical intimidation. It's, it's what he kept doing. And every time Biden would take the exactly. bait, I winced. But but that would eliminate that physical intimidation. That's the upside for all of us. The downside is that his bully boy followers are going to say, oh, well, you know, they're, they're protecting Mike Pence again. But I think you're onto something, Mike. Thank you very much. Louise in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Hey, Louise, what's up? I listened to the whole debate, and I waited for something that was really going to jump out at me. And the thing that jumped out at me was when he said to stay tuned to the white supremacists, stand by. And then I remember him panning the audience at Ginsburg and her funeral, and he's standing there with that mask on, and they're yelling, vote him out. And those beady little snake eyes are looking around, and I thought... He was not running against Joe Biden. He was running against America. He was running against democracy. He was running against our republic. He was running against the idea of free and fair elections. He was running against the idea of an egalitarian, you know, nation of laws. That's what he was running against. And we need to be very clear about that. Donald Trump is not running against Joe Biden. He's running against America. Louise, thank you. I share your concern. Matt in Vancouver, Washington. Hey, Matt, what's up? Hey, Tom, how was your night? You know, I pretty much quit drinking a month or two ago because I was finding that a glass of wine with dinner was becoming two glasses of wine with dinner and, you know, a couple nights a week was becoming every night. I thought this is not a good thing. So I quit. Last night, 15 minutes into the debate, I got up, walked across the room to the kitchen, pulled out a bottle of wine and poured myself a glass. That's how bad it was, Matt. How about you? I feel sorry for all the mental health professionals around the country this morning whose phones are probably ringing off the hook. Yes, I agree. This is not a good thing for America. So let me get to my point here. I've been on the conservative COVID tour basically this summer for my job. I've been to Texas. I've been to Utah. I've been to Alabama. 
in Georgia, and I've spoken with a lot of uh, Trump supporters, some pretty rural areas in, in a lot of those states. And the one thing I can kind of get to that I really feel that these Trump supporters, and you've touched on this before, is the owning of the libs. And I also think that they feel that this country has let them down so badly for so long and they've been lied to by every single candidate that's come through their town, whether it be a Democrat or a Republican, that they just want to see the country burn. And that's yeah. the 30% that said Trump won that debate last night. Like you said, he's running against America. You know, I've talked about this many times. I'm of the opinion that what Reagan did when Reagan said that he was going to gut the middle class, destroy unions and basically end the welfare state, as it were, end the support of people in crisis. The consequence of that was that 30 years on, 10 years ago in 2010, for the first time since basically the end of World War II, the American middle class, fewer than half of Americans were in the middle class any longer. When Reagan came into office, I don't recall the exact number, but it was in the 60%. Now it's less than 50%, fewer than 50%. So you've got a lot of people out there who are like, yeah, I have been screwed. You know, my wages are lower. My benefits are lower. We just got a notice. You know, we pay health insurance for our employees. We just got a notice a couple of days ago that our health insurance premiums are going really up. I mean, you know, it's, it's like mind boggling. And it's like we're all being screwed and it's the logical consequence of 40 years of Reaganism. But those Trump supporters, they're not thinking in those terms. They don't understand, you know, that there's been a 40-year campaign against them. They just know that they got screwed. They're pissed off. And Trump says, hey, if you're pissed off, I'm your guy. Back to you, man. Yeah, exactly. He's kicked that rock over and exposed all the worms and earwigs of the white supremacists that all, you know, lived in their little corners of the world. And we knew they were there. But now they have a platform, and he gave them total ammunition last night, which was completely dangerous. And I am fairly nervous about what the next couple of months are going to look like. I yeah. hope and I pray that every single person who is leaning Democrat, who was a Bernie supporter, who was Elizabeth Warren supporter— gets up and goes and votes for Joe Biden. It is critical that every single person do it. You have to overwhelm the numbers to the point that yes. they can't cheat this election. And that yeah. is what's going to save here. And we've got to reach yeah. out to Trump supporters when this is all said and done. God willing and God praying that Joe Biden wins this thing. And we've got to heal these divisions because we as a country... I, I agree. We can't go on like this anymore. We cannot go yeah, on and, like and this. Bi and Biden made that point last night, man. You know, he said, if I'm elected president, I will be the president for all of America. And Donald Trump has made it very clear that he's not interested in being the president of all America. He's interested in being the president of red state America, period, full stop. In fact, on April 8th or 9th, I forget which day it was, we now know, you know, Jared Kushner supervised that meeting in the White House where when they got the report that the majority of people dying from COVID were black or brown people, at that point, they had this whole plan to send masks to everybody. The post office was ready, five masks going to every, every literally every human being in America. And uh, Kushner said, oh, pull the plug on it. It's only happening in the blue states. This will actually work to our political advantage. And that's how cynical and how, frankly, in my opinion, evil these guys are. Thanks a lot for the call. David in Spotswood, New Jersey. Hey, David, what's up? Uh, I have the same sentiment as your uh, previous caller. I just took a ride to Cumberland. Atlanta. I did a 55-mile bike ride, and every mm -hmm. Trump sign was bigger and better than the next. If we don't have a landslide election, I don't know what these people are going to do. I mean, if we, if we overwhelmingly beat Trump, I think we'll be okay. But if we don't, I mean, it's a cult. Yeah. You know, I don't know if it's what Lyndon Ben Johnson said, is if a white man is willing to have his pock picketed, so long as he's greater than a, a black man, or it's right. some sort of uh, strange brainwashing where they feel like they need to be, in, that they somehow had power and lost it, which I read in the book. Yeah, no, it's, it's exactly what Lyndon Johnson said. He was talking about the Republicans, and he said, if you tell the lowest white man that he is better than the highest black man, he will let you pick his pocket all day long. And that's exactly what Donald Trump was saying last night. And that's exactly what's going on. Spot on. Lyndon Johnson, God rest him, nailed it. Thank you very much for the call, David. 
is it Azalee or Azalee? I'm not sure how to pronounce your name in Villa Park, Illinois. Azalee. Azalee. Hey, what's up? I watched that debate. You can call it a debate. And I have decided I am not going to watch any more of that because I already know what is going to be happening. And I would, yeah, I would hope that a lot of people send a message by not participating that way, but participating in the way that we know is going to help the right people be elected by, you know, making calls and, and, you know, giving them money, things like that. And also to know what the candidates intend to do. All we have to do is watch the news and watch, you know, when they go out and speak. We don't need to watch like that because that messes up your mind. It's really disgusting. And you know what? I have said to myself a a long time ago, Fox News, and I mean, they're not the only one, but, you know, the conservative media, they are brainwashing the people. And that's what is really happening. I'm 88 years old. And I know that because, you know, I've lived that long to see it. If there was no Fox News, we would not be in this situation. They don't know they are being brainwashed. They listen to this, and it's all, just about all of it is not true. And truth makes you free. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, with two N's, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity, and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, the two N's, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey. 
Blaine in Thousand Oaks, California. Hey, Blaine, what's up? Well, that was 90 minutes I could never get back. <laughs> yeah. Tom you're, my, <laughs> Tom, you're my hero. I just wanted to comment on the debate's process. You know, if Chris mm-hmm. Wallace's stated position prior to the debate was to be a, quote, invisible moderator, he was very successful at it. You know, I can only, I don't know, I can only compare it to watching a boxing match with an invisible referee where the two fighters were just locked in a clinch for the entire 12 rounds. With no well, what I heard this morning, Blaine, on Fox <laughs> News was that Chris Wallace interrupted Donald Trump five times more than he interrupted Joe Biden, 500 percent more. I wonder why. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, they didn't. They're not talking about that. Yeah. And uh, if the other debates are like this, I mean, why bother even watching them? That's all yeah, I got. To I, say. I I have to do this because it's how I make my living. But if I were not, you know, a guy doing a radio show about politics every day, I would have no interest in watching subsequent debates. Trump has shown us that he is not going to tell the truth. He's not going to discuss issues. And it was painful. I mean, it was actually painful. The two things I did last night that I don't normally do, number one, drank a whole glass of wine last night. And number two, in about the middle of the debate, I got so pissed off, I opened my computer and sent 100 bucks to Joe Biden's campaign. I have donated to his campaign before, but they've been, I think it's only been once or twice. And, you know, it was kind of, uh, but bang. I mean, that's it. It's, it's, how else can I make a statement? But anyway, I did it. So Linda in Coconut Creek, Florida. Hey, Linda, what's up? Thanks for listening to Progressive Voices. Uh, thanks, Tom. And thanks for all you do. I think your frustration was felt across America. You know, there were more lies than any truth. And Biden was the only one telling the truth or trying to get it through, but Trump kept interrupting him. He's a bully. Everybody knows he's a bully. But the biggest lie that upset me the most is, you know, I'm retired from the post office. And to go out there and scare people and tell them, don't use that ballot. You know, he was lying through and through. It's the safest way to vote. It's a dependable way to vote. And it just it's frustrating when when my own friend tells me, oh, I'm afraid to vote by mail. And I'm like, come on, I've worked at the post office for 21 years. Are you crazy? No, no, no. You can't trust the post office. I'm like, what? (laughs) What? (laughs) I just. This is voter suppression, Linda. Last night. You know, it's just voter suppression. That's what he's doing. Exactly. And these poor people that believe him wholeheartedly have no clue what he's really about. He's attacking them and he's going to take everything from them. They don't see it. That's my frustration, Tom. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Oh, according to this, according to this complaint again, you know, that was filed with the Federal Election Commission, his campaign has uh, spirited 140 million dollars out of donations into the pockets of a bunch of people running the campaign. I mean, it's it's nuts. Linda, thank you for the call. And yes, a salute to the post office. This is the Tom Hartman program. Our book today for the Tom Hartman Book Club is Unmaking the Presidency, Donald Trump's War on the World's Most Powerful Office by Susan Hennessy and Benjamin Witz. And this is from the introduction, page five. They've described how all the former presidents, with the exception of Herbert Walker Bush, who was ill, were there for Trump's inauguration, as well as Secretary Clinton and her husband, Bill Clinton. And then he continues, the clock mounted down to the key moment shortly before noon when Donald Trump stood before Chief Justice John Roberts. Trump's wife, Melania, held two Bibles on which he placed his left hand. One was from Trump's childhood. The other was the Bible that Abraham Lincoln used to take his oath of office in 1861. And then Trump raised his right hand and, repeating after Roberts, swore the presidential oath of office. A momentary silence hung in the air. No lightning bolt struck. Ground did not open. The passage of power in the United States had taken place as quietly as ever. Yet in that moment, an earthquake of sorts did occur, because although the United States may have had more tragically misguided executives at its helm, never before had it had as president a man more obviously misplaced in the office. The mismatch reverberated across the country with the very words of the oath itself. While for millions of Trump supporters, the moment was one of triumph, For a great many others, a sense of dread pervaded the air that morning. This dread had little to do with politics or policy programs. It was not the normal apprehension one might have at the swearing-in of a politician one opposes. Even many people who had cast their ballots for Trump shared a collective recognition 
that the man swearing this oath was simply not the sort of man who was supposed to be president of the United States. That mismatch and the challenge it poses to the office Trump assumed that day are the subjects of this book. This mismatch is fundamentally a question of character. At its core, to a far greater degree than Americans commonly imagine, the office of the presidency depends on a measure of civic virtue. We don't mean civic virtue in the loftier, nostalgic sense of expecting our elected leaders to be scholars, statesmen, who can theorize a system of government as easily as they can lead one. Nor do we mean virtue in the sense of personal righteousness and purity. Americans have long since given up the expectation that our country's leaders will be on a par with its founders, even as the founders' own luster has tarnished over time. The presidency has had its share of rogues and villains and incompetence. That said, a certain common understanding of the presidency has prevailed over more than two centuries. And this understanding, call it the traditional presidency, carries with it certain expectations. It does not expect presidents to be paragons of virtue, but it does expect them to espouse shared values and to at least pose as role models. It expects presidents to speak of service and putting others before self. It expects presidents to, at a minimum, pay lip service to following the law and embracing an ethos of civic duty. And it pervasively depends on presidents thinking that they enforce and comply with rules in good faith. By contrast, it was resoundingly clear on January 20th, 2017, that Donald Trump's life and candidacy were an ongoing rejection of civic virtue, even if we define the term loosely. From the earliest days of his campaign, he declared war on the traditional presidency's expectations of behavior. He was flagrant in his personal immorality, boasting of marital infidelity, and belittling political opponents with lewd insults. He had constructed his entire professional identity around gold-plated excess and luxury and the branding of self. As a candidate, he remained unabashed in his greed and personal ambition. Even his namesake charitable foundation was revealed to be merely a shell for self-dealing. He bragged that finding ways to avoid paying taxes made him smart. The overriding message of Trump's life and of his campaign was that kindness is weakness, manners are for wimps, and the public interest is for suckers. He never spoke of the presidential office other than as an extension of himself. In America in 2016, that turned out to be a winning message. The reasons why have been treated in depth elsewhere. It was a function of political polarization domestically, of myriad forces driving the appeal of authoritarian populists globally, and of the dramatic loss of confidence in political elites, and of a media ecosystem in which voters can increasingly choose their own realities. It was a function, no doubt, of the resurgence of race as a salient political identity for many white voters. And critically for present purposes, it was a function of political parties' loss of control over their own nominating processes. We'll leave to others the question of how to assess Trump's appeal and the social conditions that allow him to flourish. The relevant fact for now is that the appeal was broad enough for Trump to win 306 electoral votes and thus acquire the privilege of taking the oath of office that day. And so a man who quite proudly rejected personal and public virtue now occupied an office designed by people who valued nothing higher. George Washington had said that, quote, virtue or morality is a necessary spring of popular government. John Adams had insisted the public virtue, quote, the only foundation of republics could not exist in a nation without private virtue. Alexander Hamilton had written that virtue and honor were the foundation of confidence that underpinned the institution of delegated power. The contemporary Anglo-Irish philosopher Edmund Burke had famously declared that, quote, society cannot exist unless a controlling power upon will and appetite be placed somewhere. Unmaking the Presidency by Hennessy and Wicks. We have talked with Greg Palace many, many times about how the state of Georgia and the fellow Brian Kemp, who was the secretary of state, was actively purging African-Americans off the voting rolls in Georgia. Obviously, this is not something that is limited to Georgia. And Greg Palace has just broke some really wild news about what's going on in Wisconsin. On the line with us is our old friend Greg Palace. Greg Palace, P-A-L-A-S-T dot com is his website, his 
Twitter handle, just like mine is Tom underscore Hartman. His is Greg underscore Palast, P-A-L-A-S-T. And Greg, welcome back. Tell us about Wisconsin. The state Supreme Court of Wisconsin may be picking our president. They're hearing a lawsuit by a Republican-backed group to enforce a law signed by Scott Walker, which would require the removal of 129,000 voters from the voter rolls of Wisconsin. By the way, that's six times Trump's victory margin, 129,000 voters, on the grounds that they've moved. You can't vote in Milwaukee if you've left Milwaukee. Sequana Taylor is on that list for having moved from Milwaukee. She's Milwaukee County supervisor. So we went through the list, Black Voters Matter Fund released my report of the Palace Investigative Fund. By the way, you can get it at Capital Times, Madison, or gregpalace.com. And what we found was ugly. 39,722 people on the list never moved. They're right where they registered. They shouldn't lose their votes. However, if you look at the map that we created, census tract by census tract, there is a near-perfect match between people wrongly tagged to lose their vote and the black population of a census district. We actually called 700 of these so-called movers, and they all said we didn't move or we moved down the street, which means you don't lose your registration if you move in your neighborhood. That's another 58,000 people wrongly tagged, and almost everyone was a voter of color or a student. And I have to say, here's some good news. The state of Wisconsin agrees with our findings and says this list is junk. We don't want to use it. So that's why they are in court today. The Wisconsin Supreme Court still has a Republican majority of one. And if they choose to remove these 129,000 student and black voters, well, we could have a repeat of 2016 in which this kind of Jim Crow operation, not the voters, Wisconsin, it chooses the president. So I'm very concerned. So, again, it's completely racial. It's completely wrong. And just to know how we know whether people moved or not, we weren't guessing. We did something the state and certainly Governor Walker and his cronies didn't do. We hired the post office itself, which you can do, the licensee of the post office and the top three address verification experts in America that work for Google and Amazon and Home Depot. And I just had the experts go through name by name using 1,700 data points to make sure we knew exactly where each of these voters lived. And we called them, we sent them letters, and it confirmed it all. But unfortunately, the state Board of Elections agrees with us. They do not want to purge these voters. The law says they must, but they're saying that federal law and their higher responsibility is you can't just remove people because someone said this black student has moved somewhere when they're standing right there and we're talking to them, we have them on camera. So, Greg, let me just get this straight. The conservatives, the Republicans in Wisconsin who are who are suing before the Supreme Court, the, the the Republicans in Wisconsin are saying that there's a couple hundred thousand more or less. It's in the neighborhood of 100,000 people, right? Yeah, about 129,000. Okay, so they're saying that 129,000 people in Wisconsin have moved out of state and therefore out of of their city. Mm-hmm. But they've moved. So why, if they've moved, when I moved here to Portland from Washington, D.C., I didn't tell Washington, D.C. that I had moved. My guess is I was probably on their voter rolls for another couple of years until they figured out I'd left town. But I didn't vote. What's the crisis? What's the problem with having people on your voting rolls who no longer live there? Why are the Republicans so, you know, I get it. They're so freaked out about this because they want to steal the election. But, but how does that rationalization even hold up in a court of law? Well, they're saying that they have a list called the the Eric Movers list, which is not meant, uh, by the way, the organization itself says this is not a purge list. This is just a list of people who they think may have moved, but they mix a lot of Jose Garcia's. They mix James Brown's, so you get a lot of common uh, minority names. And, you know, students put in change of addresses temporarily for uh, the summer, and they go, gotcha, we're going to remove you from the voter rolls. But that's... You know, they're trying to come up with ways they understand that students uh, move dorm rooms and uh, move locally. They understand that renters move around. And, of course, there's a confusion with African-American, Hispanic, and Asian-American names, uh, which are in common. So if Jose Garcia moves out of Milwaukee, three other Jose Garcias are now in danger of losing their vote. It's Like you say, it's crazy from a 
democracy view, not a democratic view, a democracy view to say that, by the way, we did confirm that about 60,000, well, about, I'd say about 30% of the list are people who have moved and should re-register, fine. We've confirmed that. But you know what? Even keeping those few thousand on the voter rolls, they've never had a case in which someone is voting in Milwaukee after moving to Los Angeles. You know, it's just completely nuts. And uh, that's my point. Yeah. It's nuts from a democracy view. It's brilliant from a Republican strategy view. Several states are using this gimmick. So that's why I went to Wisconsin. But today the Supreme Court there is going to hear it. And like I say, it's really unusual in that we have the government itself saying, you know, palace numbers are correct. This list is junk. We can't use it. It's against federal law. It's against even against Wisconsin law, which says you have to have reliable information, not Republican information. You understand the difference? It's Republican information. There's reliable information. And the commission, (laughs) which is, by the way, bipartisan, the bipartisan commission says, no, we'd like reliable information. And, you know, what we did was we literally hired the post office as one of our consultants, which they didn't do. That is, the GOP didn't do. In fact, the guy bringing the suit, this right-wing organization, backed by the billionaire right-wing Bradley family, this guy said, I didn't, I said, you checked the accuracy of the list? No. Did you hire the post office licensees required by law? No. Did you see that this is mostly African Americans and students? We did no demographic review. Of course they didn't, because they know the answer, and they know that that's also a violation of the remnants of the Voting Rights Act. It is screamingly Jim Crow. If you look at the maps that we have at gregpalace.com or at madison.com, which is the Capital Times, or you get the report, I mean, it's ugly. It's like a stain. You see Greg, when are we, when are we going to hear the uh, decision of the Wisconsin Supreme Court? We just have 20 seconds, sir. Okay. Hopefully they'll say, we don't, we're going to punt. We're not going to even deal with this until after the election. But the law does say these people have to be removed unless court says we have a higher law and we can't remove legal voters. It could be and the legislature is still Republican-controlled, even though there's a Democratic governor, so they're not going to change the law, right? They're not going to. They've gerrymandered themselves into permanent residence. Sick. Amazing. Amazing. Greg Palast, the great Greg Palast. GregPalast.com, the website. You can tweet him at Greg underscore Palast, and uh, you can learn all about it over at his website. And his new book, uh, How Trump Stole 2020. Check that out, too. Greg, thanks a lot for dropping by. You're the best, Tom. Thank you. Thank you. We'll be right back. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com Hartman with two N's. NetSuite.com slash Hartman. That's NetSuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. 
I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting. But Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select podcast in the survey and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. On the science revolution this week, Trump never noticed a modern-day American disaster. He's trying to spread the virus as far and wide as possible. We should call this today what history will call it when it looks back on this moment, genocide. David Kraft with the Nuclear Energy Information Services here. It's time to end Exelon's nuclear hostage crisis. Climate risks are compounding financial challenges for Midwest nuclear plants. Plus, Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist II of Michigan drops by to explain that racism is a public health crisis. Tune into the Science Revolution wherever fine podcasts are available. So two days ago, I got a press release from Senator Sanders' office titled, Sanders, Two Dozen Lawmakers Call for OAS Accountability to Assure Fair Elections in Bolivia. Senator Bernie Sanders, Representative Jan Schakowsky, Representative Hank Johnson, Representative Deb Allen, led two dozen members of Congress calling on the State Department to pursue a full independent review of the Organization of American States regarding its actions last November. This was also signed by Ro Khanna and Jamie Raskin and Raul Grijalva and Barbara Lee and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Jim McGovern, just a bunch of Ilhan Omar, a bunch of people signing this. So what is this all about? Why are so many progressives in Congress flipped out about what's going on in Bolivia with the Organization of American States, something that most of us probably haven't heard about in 20, 30 years, if that. On the line with us is Mark Weisbrot. He's the co-director of the Center for Economic and Policy Research, CEPR.net is their website. He's also the president of the Just Foreign Policy Group and the author of several books, including his most recent, Failed, What the Experts Got Wrong About the Global Economy. Mark's uh, Twitter handle is Mark Weisbrot, W-E-I-S-B-R-O-T. Mark, welcome back to the program. It's been a while since we've talked. Tell us about this. Uh, you know, what yeah. was the situation in Bolivia with uh, Evo Morales? What was going on? Why and how was that a arguably a good thing? And then what happened with the OAS in the 2019 election? Well, in terms of Evo Morales and his government from 2005, or he's elected 2005, it goes 2006 to last year, it was enormously successful. First of all, it's a majority or, well, somewhere between 40 and 50 percent indigenous. So it's the largest indigenous percentage of population in the Americas. And, you know, he was the first indigenous president. And he was able, you know, his government was able to reduce poverty by 42 percent, reduce extreme poverty by 60 percent. And, of course, indigenous Bolivians were much poorer on average than the rest of the population, so they gained a lot, and that's why his support is still overwhelming among indigenous Bolivians. And that's also why I think this story has gotten so little attention, by the way. It's just the racism of it. This was a completely racist coup, as we'll get to in a minute, to restore the people who used to run the country before he was elected, who are mostly white and mestizo, and then that's what happened. They were able to accomplish quite a bit, and uh, he would have been almost certainly, well, he was he was reelected by the count that really took place. Right. And the Morales administration had some really substantial successes. I mean, they radically cut poverty. They extended education across the country. It was a, a real success story, and not a, uh, a Castro-style socialism success story. This was kind of democratic socialism, you know, good, good government success story. So how did it get taken down? What happened? Well, they had an election on October 20th, and they had the Organization of American States 
was overseeing the election. They had an election observation uh, mission, so they're observers. But they're, you know, they have a a certain uh, credibility. Uh, well, they don't have it actually among people who really look at it. But they're official observers, and they came in there. And there's a preliminary count in the election. This is the short uh, version of the story. There's a preliminary count that takes place while people are waiting for the official count to be taken. And so it's it's a kind of a quick count, and it's done by private contractors. And it's not official, and it doesn't count, doesn't determine the result. So that count was interrupted after about 84% of the votes were counted. And Avo Morales was ahead with 45.7% of the vote. And he was ahead of the second place finisher by 7.9%. So the rules are if you get over 40%, but you're ahead by 10 points, then you win in the first round. And he didn't have 10 points. But then when the count, the quick count, or the preliminary count was resumed, he was just at 10.2. And so the OAS seized on that and issued a press release the next day, strongly implying that he stole it. In fact, and then the OAS, uh, head of the OAS, would go ahead a couple of weeks later and say that he, he did. He called it a stolen election. And then the So why would the OAS say this, Mark? Because they wanted to overturn the election, and there's a, so much Is this evidence. because rich people in Bolivia wanted to go back to being massively rich and not pay high taxes to support poor people in Bolivia? I mean, was it that simple and that crass? Or, you know, rich people across South America? I mean, who runs the OAS? What's actually going on here? Okay, so the short theory is that the head of the OAS, Luis Almagro, he wanted to do this. I mean, if I had to guess, and most people would guess, he wanted to be reelected as secretary general, and he needed the support of the Trump administration, especially the hardcore of the Trump administration, people like Rubio. Uh, and uh, this was a—it was more a crime of opportunity. I don't know that he would have done it if it hadn't come up like this, because they could use the optics of the interruption in the vote count, which actually wasn't suspicious at all. There were any number of reasons why the vote count was interrupted. And it wasn't a vote count that meant anything either. So he took advantage of that, and the OAS mission took advantage of that to promote that the election was stolen. And that worked because the opposition didn't want to accept the results anyway. And they were in the streets, and there was violence. And so they used the OAS, and so did the media. The media went and just ran with it. They didn't question them at all until very recently, in June. I mean, nine months later, finally you're getting reports in them in the major media that, oh, maybe they weren't telling the truth. But it was obvious from the right. beginning that they were lying. So they lied, and it became the political foundation of this coup. That's all around the world. If you ask anybody who, you know, just picked up the New York Times or any other paper or uh, on a, just looked on the news on the web and said what happened, asked what happened in the Bolivian election, they would tell you, if they were reading it, they would say, oh, yeah, Abel Morales stole the election. And it was only because the OAS created this false narrative. So can anything be done about this, Mark? Yeah, I think so. I mean, first of all, the Congress getting involved is a big thing, finally. And well, they actually, been, they've been involved, you know, for a while. You had members of Congress, part of, uh, four of the signatories on that letter wrote to the OAS and demanded answers about it back in November. And they still haven't answered. So what can hmm. people do? I think people can go to their member of Congress and ask them to go along with, uh, for example, Representative Jan Schakowsky and Chuy Garcia. They're from Chicago. And say there needs to be an investigation. Congress needs to investigate this. And Congress needs to make sure that when they do another election on October 18th, if the de facto government doesn't cancel that again, that it's clean that the OAS doesn't do the same yeah. thing because there's still going to be observers. Yeah, I got it. Mark Weisbrot, the co-director of the Center for Economic Policy and Research and Policy Research President of Just Foreign Policy, CEPR.net. Thanks, Mark. Thank you, Tom. Welcome to the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from the last hours of ancient sunlight. This is page 176. 
With few exceptions, most Native American cultures did not have our notions as part of their collective mythos. Instead of the story that we're separate from creation and born to nominate it, these older cultures held a different view of the place of humans in the order of creation. They believe we are part of the world. We are made of the same flesh as other animals. We eat the same plants. We share the same air, water, soil, and food with every other life form on the planet. We are born into life by the same means as other mammals, and when we die like them, we become part of the soil that will nourish future generations. They also believe it is our destiny to cooperate with the rest of creation. Every life form has its special purpose in the grand ecosystem, and all are to be respected, they believed. Each animal and plant has its own unique intelligence and spirit. We are permitted to compete with other plants and animals, but we may not wantonly destroy them. All life is absolutely as sacred as human life. Although hunting and killing for food are part of nature's order, when we do so, it must be done with respect and thankfulness. Older cultures are most often cooperators, not dominators. There are human cultures who do not engage in the destruction of the world. They demonstrate that destruction and domination are not an inevitable part of human nature. Prior to the emergence of younger cultures about 7,000 years ago, the anthropological record shows that not one culture believed itself to be separate from and superior to nature. We find the remnants of these older cultures and tribal people around the world, such as the San, the Kogi, the Ik of uh, Uganda, the Navajo, the Hopi, the Cree, the Ojibwa, living in harmony with the world around them, the people around them, and seeing all life as sacred. The San Bushmen don't even qualify as Stone Age, since they've never used stone implements, only tools made from wood. And yet they were successfully pursuing their way of life 40,000 years before Aristotle, and they still are. They leave behind few traces as they are such masters of resource management. That's sustainability. And contrary to the stories of our culture, it was and is often a happy and comfortable life. When we lived like that thousands of years ago, we enjoyed cradle-to-grave security. The tribe took care of itself. If anybody had food, everybody had food. If anybody had a diseased child or an infirm parent, everybody had a diseased child or an infirm parent. The measure of wealth in such societies was security. Medians of exchange like money were unnecessary. The idea of hoarding food or other things was unthinkable because everybody was responsible for everybody. Our ancient ancestors lived in the way of all other cooperator societies in nature, but be they the society of wolves or chimpanzees or prairie dogs, they looked out for one another. Our ancestors, people like you and me of all races and all continents, lived like this all over the world for 40 to 200,000 years, depending on whose archaeology you accept. And then there were eruptions among traditional cultures. In some parts of the world, people began to move away from their hunting and gathering lifestyle by experimenting with agriculture. This created more efficient food production, thus increasing their numbers and giving some people the ability to hoard food, the beginning of what we call wealth. Then a subgroup of the agriculturalists began experimenting with a new cultural idea of coercive or forced evangelism, of bringing others into their culture in a way that had never been done before. Their gods told them that if if they couldn't evangelize others, then they should utterly destroy them. They were a very few, probably not more than a dozen tribes, which arose out of the tens of thousands of tribes that populated the planet. And this small number of tribes proceeded to wipe out and displace and destroy the thousands of other tribes who were living in a sustainable, peaceful, and connected-to-nature way. They left the garden and began to create dominating city-states and then empires. They were the first people infected with Wetiko, the origin of our younger culture. And because of this, they had become more efficient at increasing their own numbers. They had more sunlight under their own personal control. Of course, there was a price to pay for this. While the San, Kogi, Ik, and other native peoples may spend less than two to four hours a day gathering food and attending to the needs of life, and due to this day, by the way, in younger culture societies, this balance was radically shifted as average people must work longer and harder just to survive. Those who were the dominating individuals in the culture, however, could live luxuriously and work less and less. So for every person who only worked an hour or two a day, another person would have to work four or eight or ten hours a day or more. Without massive exploitation of resources or theft from others, for every person with ten times as much wealth, ten people must have only one-tenth as much. Social and economic classes were born, and the first governments came into being to define, order, and control the socioeconomic structure and help the wealthy maintain and increase their riches. Whether they knew it or not, these governments, mostly kingdoms in the early days, transmitted younger culture values to all citizens, rich and poor. The power brokers of this time programmed the consciousness of their subjects, just as our governments, educational institutions, and mass media do today. 
Nobody knows what brought about the first eruption of Wetiko cultural insanity, but logic suggests it was most likely happened in places where food resources were only cyclically abundant. For example, the Tinglet and Weida Native American tribes of the Pacific Northwest in the area around Vancouver Island were apparently extensive traders and owners of slaves. And this was because they could store food. This, this is where it all began, beginning wealth. Anyhow, the book is The Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight. This is just a small dip into it. So two real quick things. Number one, Donald Trump was talking about how the police in Portland love him and the sheriff in Portland loves him. Well, the sheriff in Portland, he's the sheriff actually of a county, uh, Multnomah County, which is Portland, essentially. And his name is Mike Reese. Twitter handle is Sheriff Reese, R-E-E-S-E, like the Reese's Pieces. And he tweeted last night, in tonight's presidential debate, the president said that the sheriff of Portland supports him. As the Multnomah County Sheriff, I can tell you, I do not support Donald Trump and I will never support him. And then he goes on to say, Donald Trump has made my job a hell of a lot harder by the way he's talking about Portland. But I never thought he'd turn my wife against me. <laughs> Apparently his wife saw that and said, wait a minute, you support Trump? So, which brings me to my wife, Louise. This is a woman who has run several multi-million dollar companies in her lifetime. She's done just extraordinary things in addition to parenting three children. And when the debate was over last night, she made this comment to me. I really hope this is true, and I believe it probably is. And for the women who are calling in after this, and we can talk about this tomorrow as well, you know, let me know if you feel the same way. But basically, Louise said, we recognize Donald Trump. We know who that guy is. That guy, women are familiar with these male, I was going to say a word that I can't say on the air, fools who are just full of their own self-importance and full of testosterone and full of, I'm the big bully and I'm the man here and, you know, back off and I'm going to interrupt you and blah, 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 blah. And Louise's comment was, you know, we know this. You know, Trump really did a good job last night of revealing who he really is to the country. And while there may be some men who are looking at him going, whoa, he's, he's the kind of manly man that I'd like to be, I think that may be true of the Small Penis Gun Club, a.k.a. the Proud Boys, etc. But I don't think that that's true of most of America's particularly suburban women, the, the people that Donald Trump thinks that he's courting. So we'll see. We'll see. Larry in Orlando. Hey, Larry, what's up? I get sick and tired of hearing Donald Trump telling that goddamn lie that black folk is for him. That's a lie. He got fuel for Donald Trump. Black people can't stand Donald Trump. And I know I'm one of them. That's a damn show. Okay. And I, guess I got it, Larry. Yeah. Well, you know, he's done more for black people than anybody except Abraham Lincoln. Right. He's done more for everybody than anybody since uh, so-and-so. Yeah. Yeah. Larry, I get yeah. it. And I'm, I, I totally get it. Thank you very much. Mary in Shellsburg, Pennsylvania. Hey, Mary, what do you think of Louise's observation? I'm calling about how Trump would not denounce the white supremacists last night at the debate. And right. he mentioned that something about that they're standing by. And it occurred to me that I think they're planning that they're going to come to the White House to defend him physically when we try to take him out of the White House. Do you think this is possible? I think he has fantasies of a civil war. But I don't think that there's enough of these violent white racists, terrorists, in the United States to do what he wants done. They are a relatively small minority. They're a fringe minority. They're being increasingly marginalized. The FBI and other police agencies are starting to very seriously look at these folks. I think he is massively overestimating power, essentially, that they have. And, you know, I'm not terribly worried about it. Mary, thank you for the call. Trudy in Gurney, Illinois. I was wondering what you thought of Mitt Romney's, he's not going to be one of the four senators that we need. I'm looking at what he's done since yeah. January. He's already said and I that. Thought he was, I know, and I thought he's been kind of progressive because, you know, yeah. what was he, the only Republican to vote in favor of convicting Trump? But I wasn't fooled by it. But a lot of my friends were surprised that he's not going to be, and I, I was wondering why do you think he isn't going to be one? Because he's a Republican. 
This is all about power. If they can get to Auntie Amy on the court, she's what, 48 years old? She's going to be there for another 30 or 40 years issuing these right-wing decisions that are largely to the benefit of billionaires like Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney is a billionaire, and he represents the interests of billionaires. So, you know, surprise, surprise, he wants a woman on the court who is going to defend the rights of billionaires and has you know, over 70% of the rulings that she's made on the Seventh Circuit. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. We saw a full-out, full-blown assault on our democratic institutions, particularly our vote, which is what Thomas Paine called the beating heart of democracy. We saw a full-out assault on that last night. We need to fight back, and the way we do that is by voting and getting everybody we know to vote. Tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.